Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and thanks for joining us for our first show of 2016 and our 100th episode. Uh, I'm very excited to have on today an acclaimed author and television writer-producer. He's written and produced on TNT's Legends and ABC's Cold War spy drama, The Assets. His first novel, The Ascendant, follows Garrett Riley, a brilliant hotshot Wall Street trader whose skills with numbers and computers are the key to exposing a dangerous and hidden cyber war engaged against the U.S. by China that threatens to cripple the entire nation. And his new book uh, is available now entitled The King of Fear, uh, and it follows the continued exploits of Garrett Riley. Welcome to the show, Drew Chapman. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Drew. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, and thanks for having me, and I'm so honored that I'm the 100th guest. And it's perfect timing, the first show of 2016. How did you spend your New Year's? You know, I actually went to Belize with my family, and it was so awesome. Like, wow. I'm still, I'm in my head, I'm still in Belize, lying in the water, watching <laughs> sea turtles. So if I just begin to, like, zone out, that's why. Nice. So yeah, you. I was expecting. Oh, you know, we had champagne. We watched fireworks. We danced. We whatever. Yeah, Belize is not what I expected. So that's awesome. no. It's nobody. Nobody ever expects Belize. And you know what? You got to go. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty uh, of your writing and all the TV stuff, um, and the King of Fear. We'd like to find out more about our guests, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background. I know you're a Michigan man uh, where you studied history, but yep. how did you first decide you wanted to be a writer, and how did you get your start? Well, so, I mean, I actually grew up in New York City, um, and I actually wanted to be a writer. It, it's the very first thing I ever wanted to be. Um, and it's kind of all I ever wanted to be. I know that's sort of strange and, and, and like, it's not a, <laughs> it, it's not an exciting backstory, but the truth is either I was going to be a professional basketball player or I was going to be a professional writer and the basketball thing panned out, not at all very <laughs> early. So, um, yeah, so I, I just, I wanted, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway. I wanted to be, you know, Terry Southern. I, I, I wanted to just, you know, I just wanted to tell stories. Um, I went to uh, the University of Michigan, where I can't say that I studied a lot. Mostly, mm -hmm. I just worked at the um, newspaper, the Michigan Daily. Um, and that's really where I learned to write. You know, you learn journalism, but you learn all the rules. And you kind of just, you know, you, you fall into the rhythm of daily writing, writing, writing. And that was great. And then when I was done at Michigan, I sort of kicked around for a couple of years. I was a, you know, a waiter, a bartender, I just, you know, odd jobs and eventually wound my way to Los Angeles. Um, I didn't really want to do journalism. I found that I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, I wasn't good at collecting the facts and telling them accurately to people. <laughs> <It was, laughs> they, I had a, I worked uh, as a intern at the Hartford Current. Um, where I um, screwed up a story so badly with so many inaccuracies that they started calling me Slandrew. And wow. That was, that was really bad. <laughs> so I was like, okay, maybe this whole journalism thing is not going to work for me. <laughs> um, so uh, I decided that I would uh, make up stories instead of, instead of telling them, you know, uh, truthfully. But the, the, the background in journalism and collecting facts and researching has always stayed with me. So the truth is I love the research element mm -hmm. of writing. I mean, I almost like it more than the actual writing part. Um, and I think it kind of shows up in my books where they're, they're dense with facts. Right. You know, I just, I just love that stuff. I do too. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's that, that realism is, it's, you know, it's invaluable. So um, then I went to LA and I started working in production. Um, so, you know, I had a huge in in the world of film in that my dad is a cameraman. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it didn't help me much as a writer, but it sure. helped me get uh, production jobs. And it helped, I was a, an assistant director. I was a production assistant. I was a location scout. And all the while, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I would work for like, you know, a month straight and make enough money to be able to write for a month and kind of go back and forth like that. And... Um, I, uh, I, I came to L.A. thinking I was going to be a sitcom writer, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, and then I found that I just wasn't that funny. Right. Uh, and I wrote a, um, a thriller. I adapted Jack London's Seawolf, 
Uh, it was oh, wow. public domain. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to take this. I'm going to modernize it. And I did. And I worked on it for like, God, two years, rewriting, 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 giving it to people. And um, I sold it. And that was it. And then I was in. I was a screenwriter. Wow. And, I, you know, it's sort of like <clears> – it's weird. You, you, you fall into the genre that you do best in a way. Um, and I thought I was going to be this comic. But, in fact, you know, I wasn't. I was a thriller writer. And so – that's what I became. Wow. And, uh, you know, and then I, I worked uh, in the feature business for, you know, 10 years more, maybe. Um, I wrote Pocahontas for Disney. I worked, I wrote the original Iron Man script for Fox back when it was a Fox project. Mm-hmm. Um, there's none of my script of Iron Man in the, in the actual movie. I worked on the Beethoven movies. I did all kinds of stuff. I wrote and directed a f- indie feature called Standoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm hoping you really want all this bio, but I'm oh, yeah, no, not whether you want it or not. Um, <laughs> and then I, um, then the, the, the sort of the bottom fell out of the feature business. Um, right. Like all that sort of, you, you couldn't, you could make a living doing rewrites and like developing stuff. And maybe you got a movie made, maybe you didn't get a movie made, but you could kind of edge along and that's what I was doing. And then it just, that, that business collapsed and they only made, you know, huge, you know, $200 million action films or tiny, tiny little independent films. And I'd done both, but I find that I couldn't really like support myself doing that. And that was a moment of crisis for me. I was like, Hmm, what am I going to become? And I had a friend who, um, had been a producer in features, but who switched over to television and she was working at ABC and she said, Hey, come and just, you know, pitch me a couple of ideas. And I did. And she goes, you know, no, that one's terrible. That one's terrible, but I like this one, you know, come back with that one. And I did, and she bought it and I was a TV writer and I've never looked back. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And I, I love TV writing. It's so much more fun than writing features. It's the whole world is just it's so it, it's just so much better for writers in general, right? Um, and we can go into that, but yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, it's 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 I, I would never go back to writing features. I don't think I'll ever write a film again. Right. That's no. Yeah. Well, definitely. I'd love to chat with you more about that because we've actually had a, a number of of conversations about uh, TV versus feature writing. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. Um, but before we jump into that, um, talking about your, your dad working in camera, he was the cinematographer, Michael Chapman on, um, taxi driver, raging bull, the fugitive. So that's pretty awesome. I just wanted to throw that out there. Oh yeah, no, he was for a while. He was the highest paid, uh, DP, uh, director of photography in Hollywood. Um, and he even he never won an Academy Award, but he got nominated twice. Yeah, um, he was a big deal, really. Yeah. Big. I mean, he's retired now; he's still alive. Um, but he, in the world of camera, he was big. I grew up, you know, sh- going to movie sets, traveling the mm-hmm. world, visiting him. Um, but I never ever wanted to be a cameraman. Right. Uh, that's a hard job, and it's physically just demanding. And you're away from your family all the time. He was gone all the time. Uh, you're, you know, you're up all night for weeks and weeks at a time. It's, it just never appealed to me. But I do, I do think when one of the reasons I became a writer is that that whole romantic idea of being on set, mm-hmm. just, I mean, I, I saw through it because I was on set from the time I was a little kid. Right. You know, I knew that it was boring <laughs> and hard and not romantic at all. So it kind of spared me. But as a TV writer producer, you're on set quite a bit. Although I'm, the the jobs are drastically different than being specifically crew. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. You're on set, but you're sitting at a chair. Right. You have coffee. Right. Other people bring you stuff, and right. you kind of just are like, you know, you're an ass. You're just like, hey, can you change this? Can you change that? <laughs> and also, honestly, yeah, I really don't. Uh, I don't love it. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I avoid it. If I can get somebody else to be on set for me, I will. Oh wow! Um, even if they're shooting my stuff, I just am like, oh, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I just, I don't love it. It's, it's not. I, I don't. The, the conversation that I have with writers, mm-hmm. conversations I have with writers, are always more interesting than the conversations I have with anybody else. Right. Um, I like writers. Uh, I mean, it's not that directors, producers, actors aren't wonderful. They are. Mm-hmm. Um, they just aren't necessarily talking about the stuff that I want to talk about. 
it's definitely interesting too to see the sort of niche that specific TV writers and producers fall into. We were talking to Jeffrey Lieber, um, who co-created Lost and and was on uh, the showrunner for NCIS New Orleans. And he had mentioned that he, when he's a showrunner, he likes to hire different writers for different purposes, meaning he doesn't dislike being on set, but he finds himself often very, very busy. So he likes to have a couple writer producers that can be his voice on set for episodes that he's writing because he doesn't have time to go down there. A couple that are really good at finalizing cuts for him that are, you know, so that, that, are specialists in running certain parts of the show that give him more freedom to do other things. So it's interesting to, to hear uh, different perspectives. Like some he likes that he's, he enjoys having some people who are just spot on in the room and some that are really good in the editing suite. Some are that they're obviously have to be good writers as well, but it's just interesting to see that sort of division of labor, so to speak. Well, and you never know when you're hiring people or you're in a room with other people, what they're going to be really good at. Hmm. Like, you know, I mean, obviously you know whether they can write because you've read their scripts and you know generally whether they're going to be good in a room because you talk to people and say, what was that person like in a room? Um, But for instance, like, being on set, you know, what are they going to be like? You know, how are they going to handle authority? You know, I've been on set my entire life. I've uh-huh. directed, I've produced. So like for me, it's not big deal. I can handle that. It's that's totally fine. Right. But I don't like it. You know, it's not, uh, I don't yeah. love it. Some people just love it. They just want to be there every second. They love the camaraderie. The other thing is that, you know, television shows now, it's such a global enterprise, mm-hmm. um, and the writers are always in Los Angeles, but, you know, hardly anything gets shot in L.A. anymore. So, you know, like Legends, we shot Legends in London and in Prague. That's really hard wow. on producers yeah. because you need to be in the writer's room figuring out what the story is, and you also need to be on set, like mm-hmm. making sure that they don't screw up. So that's brutal. On the assets for ABC, we shot in Lithuania. You know, and that was really hard. You just, you know, you're, you do a lot of flying and you do a lot of long phone calls with people in other cities trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Right. I mean, that's the modern world, I guess. So you can't complain that much, but <laughs> it, it, it is, it, it, it's different than, you know, if you're working on, say, I don't know, criminal minds when they're shooting, you know, in and around Culver City. Right. On sound stages and yeah. Exactly. Um, and going back to what we were talking about, the sort of difference between writing for features and television, since you've done both, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, your experience uh, writing for film versus TV and why it is that you enjoy writing television so much more. Well, it's a bunch of things. I mean, first off, I don't think that there actually is a film business anymore. I mean, there's the business of making huge Marvel comic book movies. Mm -hmm. And honestly, only a few people write those things. um, And they make millions of dollars, and that's great. But, you know, it's not like – it's not a business. It just just isn't. I mean, it's a global business run by a few mega corporations, but it's it's not television. Television's an actual business, you know, Um, and – and because of that, they need writers, and that's great. So that, that's the first difference. And you can actually make a living being a TV writer. I just don't think you can make a living being a feature writer exclusively. Um, so that's one thing. You know, and this is a weird thing to say, but I love that writers run television. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do. We have all the power in television, not all the power, but we have an extraordinary amount of power as opposed to in features where you have none. I mean, just none. And that's, you know, that's a that, that's dispiriting. I mean, like <laughs> I know very few feature writers who are happy. You know, it's just not a happy place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so hard that you are working your ass off, you know, pouring your soul onto the page and can be fired in a heartbeat with right. no, you no know, recourse. Just you're gone. We're replacing you. It's right. just it's terrible. It's a terrible thing. And you, you and you think, well, that seems like, you know, really you're complaining about that and you're making all this money. It's like, yeah, I am. I'm complaining about that. That's a that kills your soul. Um, <laughs> and it and it makes writing really hard. You yeah. you know, wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I'm going to do this, but I could just get canned. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I I think 
is like, honestly, that's a huge, huge difference between the two. Um, I love the serialized nature of television. I love that the characters go on and on. I love that television is about character more than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, film is so concept driven. Um, you need that huge, big thing that, you know, attracts people in the first weekend. And, you know, that's fun. I like big ideas. But ultimately, you know, what you really want is to explore how people relate to each other. And, you know, that's that's why you do it. That's why you're a writer. Um, so I find that much more just fulfilling. Um, there's the, the sort of collaborative nature too, um, mm-hmm. in television. Uh, I mean, a lot of what I do is write pilots. So, um, it isn't as collaborative. I'm just, I'm still doing that by myself, but the moment you get a staff or you're on staff or you're, you know, creating a show, then you're working with all the other people. And that's great. Right. That's really, you know, that that's fun. It gets me out of my cave. Um, yeah. and you know, we all want to like, just be with other people who are like us and have similar interests and, you know, other writers are like that. Yeah. And honestly, I thought that that's where you were going at the beginning, but talking about the serialized nature and talking about the sort of, of the nature of TV being a writer's medium and, and film being really a director's medium. Um, that's usually the answer we get, but to hear, I mean, that's what's interesting to hear. We usually get the whole, it's, TV is very collaborative and, and features are sort of you're in your own space. But I know you're also a novelist where you're obviously in your own space. I mean, it's not very collaborative in that sense. But Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about like the, in a way, writing a book and writing a feature and mm-hmm. writing television are more alike than they are different. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, when you sit down to actually write the script, you're by yourself. You know, right. it, it is, true. it's entirely just you doing this thing, um, and, and creating on paper and, and that's, that's just you in a room. So even if, even if you have a writing partner, which I've had, mm-hmm. you know, you usually write some part of it and they write the other part and then you switch off or whatever, you know, there's all different ways to do it. Um, but it's, it's not ultimately your writer, no matter what the medium, um, I think, the differences are that in features, all you do is write the script and then you walk away right. or you're fired. Um, and in television, you are part of the process going forward. You know, you're either on staff and you're, you know, you write more scripts or you go produce your episodes and you're there in the editing room. You know, you're, you're constantly involved. So that, that, that is a really big difference. And then the difference between, TV features and writing a book, I think the biggest difference is that when you write a script, be it for television or for features, it's a blueprint. You know, it's, it's, it, you're laying out what is to come. Whereas for a book, in a book, the book is the thing. It's the finished product. Um, right. And that's a huge difference. That, that really like, to me, is the defining difference between the mediums. Um, you know, when I write a book and the book goes out into the world, it's done. Mm-hmm. There's no, no actors, no directors, no nothing. It's, that's the finished product. A script is never like that. And people who write scripts as if they are finished products, I think are making a bit of a mistake. Right. That's, we definitely emphasize that as well, that there's so many pieces, there's so many things that go into actually making a finished product that uh, you can't be as proprietary uh, as a lot of uh, uh, writers like to think, you know, this oh is my, my film or this is my whatever, my pilot. If anyone touches it, they're ruining my vision or whatever. And it, you can't do totally, that. Totally. Totally. You have to be so flexible. And if you don't, und- not just flexible psychologically, but flexible as an artist, because mm-hmm. you don't want to write a thing that is just stuck in stone and solid. Like that's a mistake. Then Mm. you don't give all these other people a chance to make it better. Right. Absolutely. And and you really, and, and you can even read it in some scripts where they are so precise about every little thing. And you're like, no, that's too precise. That's Mm. not how it should be. You, you need to make it a little vaguer so that, you know, everybody gets a chance to elevate the material. Right. And I still remember a scene from, I don't know if it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think it was Raiders of the Lost Ark where, 
Harrison Ford is supposed to do this uh, complex scene with uh, uh, the bullwhip doing all these <laughs> stunts, and he got sick. And so he came out and just can I just shoot the guy? You know, because this guy has this big sword. Uh, right. And uh, and it worked out great. It was brilliant. But if you're stuck to whatever the material is, I mean, granted, that was obviously an extenuating circumstance that he was sick. But it, it sort of falls into that category that you miss opportunities for uh, those those golden moments that that just happenstance. If totally you're like the material. If you ever, I, I love reading old scripts, mm-hmm. um, and so you can go like to the Academy uh, Library or the Writers Guild Library, and you know pull out like if if you ever, I love John Ford westerns. So if you ever right. read like the script for a John Ford western, unbelievably stripped down, like they are just like you know interior bar character walks in, then dialogue, <laughs> then pulls gun, shoots him, then dialogue, like it's. You know, it's really basic, but those movies are great. Yeah. And, you know, it it was just a different process. Um, Now scripts are, you know, written so often to be read as opposed to be shot. And and that's a little weird. Right. Um, Now, I wanted to talk about uh, your novel, your novel career, your writing. Um, You were obviously a successful uh, produced professional screenwriter and TV writer. And then you kind of segued into uh, being an author. How was that process? How did that occur, that sort of transition? And how did you get your first book published by Simon & Schuster, The Ascendant? Okay, well, it's, you know, I'd love to have the the tale of like, I sent it to 40 publishers and I tried (laughs) for 10 years. And I'm I'm not going to tell you that story. so what happened was I had a, a script deal, what they call a blind script deal, where mm-hmm. you know a, an unnamed network, we'll just leave it unnamed for the moment, um, had me under contract to sell them um, projects, but you know at, uh, very undefined as to what the projects were. It's like Andrew, we want to work with you. Here's some money. Come back to us with ideas. And I knew, and I this was like they hired me in December, and I knew that wasn't really going to sell to them for like six months. And so I was just sitting there. I, I knew I was going to get money. Um, trying to figure out what I was going to write. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea for The Ascendant. Um, I had this really this idea for the main character, Garrett Riley, um, And I wanted to write a, a kind of a, an action hero, a thriller action hero character, but not sort of the classic middle-aged man who, you know, can kill you with his pinky and, like, you know, <laughs> used to be a green beret. And, like, right. I just, like, I got, I was so tired of those characters. And so... I just didn't believe it, and I, I never, I never met that guy, right? Right. But I had met like twenty-six-year-old bond traders in Wall Street. I grew up in New York, and those guys were just complete jackasses, and they, you know, drank too much, and they, you know, were constantly hitting on women, and they were kind of assholes. And I wanted to create, I wanted that guy to right. be my hero, and I wanted him to be politically subversive. Um, I like main characters that really are subversive, um, mm-hmm. that go against the grain of what everybody else is thinking. And right. so I made him kind of paranoid and kind of hates the government. And he had an older brother who was killed in Afghanistan. And so he hates the military. Um, and I wanted this anti-patriot to have to become a patriot, you know, to have to save the, save the country. A guy who hates the country has to save the country. Um, and so he was the perfect guy. But then I thought, well, is a network really going to make that show? Like, is that, can I really like create this guy and tell this story for a broadcast network? And this was, I was under contract to a broadcast network. Sure. I thought, I don't really think I can. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to write this as a book. Um, I'd always wanted to write a book and I love like spy novels and I love thriller novels. And, you know, I'm not Tolstoy in any way, shape or form. Um, I like sort of, broad mainstream stuff mm-hmm. and i thought i want to write one of those but i want to write it i almost want to bring the world of television writing to a novel i want it to be like a page turner i want cliffhangers i want a main character who's really troubled i, I want that sort of that sort of loner anti-hero that you see so much in television now mm-hmm. and i want to mm-hmm. bring it to the world of thrillers um because you don't see that in mainstream thrillers as much mm-hmm. um in mainstream thriller novels. Um, so I thought, 
like, can I combine the two and really bring all my television strengths to writing a book? So then I, I wrote it and, and this is sort of the, the main point. I decided that I wasn't going to try to sell it to hmm. a publisher. I was just gonna, um, self publish it on Amazon. I was gonna format it myself wow. and put it on Amazon and charge like, you know, a dollar ninety nine. And, you know, if if my mom and her three best friends were the only people to ever read it, that would be fine. It'd be just, you know, that would be my that'd be my book. And I wasn't gonna take notes and I wasn't gonna like change it for people. It was just gonna be my thing. Um so I did that. I just wrote that. Wow. And um I had um my, my agent was like, what have you been doing the last six months? You know, well, why aren't you ever calling us? I was like, you know, actually, I wrote a book. And they're like, no, you wrote a book? Can we read it? I was like, oh, God, I'm like, I'm going to give it to my agent. And they're going to, like, give me all these notes. And I was like, yeah, fine, you can read it. Um, and they came back to me and they said, you know what? I think we can get this published. We, we'd like to send it to some literary agents in New York. Um, you know, would you be open to that? And honestly, I, I was – I was dubious. I was like, I don't really want to send it to some literary agent in New York. I just want to put it up on Amazon or, you know, like, and I guess I was being arrogant, but I, I also was sort of trying to stay true to, you know, this, the core idea that I was just going to write whatever I wanted. And, you know, I think that you were being subversive. I was being subversive, but, <laughs> but I also, you know what it was? And this to me is a lesson for myself and maybe for your listeners as well. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things I, is always in the back of my head is what are people going to think of my work? Like I'm going to write it. And what are people's opinions going to be? Um, because all writers, you know, we write for ourselves, but we also write for an audience and we mm -hmm. want to be liked. We want people to say, wow, that was great. We loved it. Um, and I think that that is, is very destructive um, because you sort of, you know, you shave off the sharp edges of who you are and what your story is. And I didn't do that. I was totally liberating myself. I was like, I don't give a whatever about what people think. I'm just going to write for me. And now my agents were coming to me and saying, hey, let's send it to these people who are going to tell you what they think and ask you to change it. And you know, I agreed. I said, sure, because ultimately I'm a whore. Um, <laughs> and, and so we, you know, we sent it out and, uh, immediately an agent loved it. And, and honestly, he sent it to a bunch of publishers and we got a, we got bids on it. A bunch of publishers wanted to, to, to buy it. So that part is, you know, was sort of the easy part. Um, whereas a lot of times that part is the hard part for people I know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not downplaying it. It's just that I think the hard part for me was, that moment of going, I'm just going to write this thing that is my own, is right. completely a reflection of what I like and how I like it. Um, and it, I think I'm lucky, as opposed to some writers, in that what I like is very mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm not writing about my grandmother and the Holocaust, and you know, it's like this is just straightforward action spy stuff. It's the kind of stuff that I enjoy. So, um, and even just embracing that is, you know, part is liberating. It's like, okay, this is what I like. I'm just going to do it. Um, so that's how, how it worked. And now you're following up the ascendant with the King of fear, which is on, it's an ebook. Now it's been released in sort of three, uh, uh, parts one, two, and three. And then it's coming out, uh, next month, uh, in paperback from Simon and Schuster. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the King of fear, uh, sort of how it, it carries on, you know, Garrett Riley's story from the ascendant and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, King of the ascendant is very geopolitical and it talks mm -hmm. about Garrett Riley and sort of this idea that there's an invisible war going on between the United States and China. And that war is cyber and economic and psychological, but it's a war fought without shooting any bullets. And, that was the sort of that's that's the sort of underlying concept of these books. And so in The King of Fear, it's similar, um, but it involves Eastern Europe and Russia, um, because I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe uh, producing uh, the assets for ABC. So I just I was fascinated by Eastern Europe's relationship to Russia and the United States. And and so um, The King of Fear is very much about that. And it is a story of. 
um, Russia sending somebody to the United States to disrupt the American economy. Um, so it's like a war again by destroying the banking system in the United States. And only um, Garrett Riley can sort of help. And, you know, he's the superhero. How, he, it's not only, but he sees the, the, the threat before anybody else does and, right. and tries to stop it. Um, it is because um, I'm a TV writer or have been. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, my publisher came to me and said, hey, you know, you're really good at sort of cliffhanger endings and we want to try something new. How about we release this in um, segments, in sort of sections, as an ebook before it comes out as a paperback? Um, and you know, the book has a lot of tech in it, so a lot of my readers are sort of tech savvy, and um, they just, you know, I think that the world of publishing is, you know, like so many businesses, like the music business and like television, they're trying to keep up with technology and trying to keep up with all the changes that are both you know, helping and attacking, destroying their, their core businesses. And so releasing this as in sections was part of that strategy. I mean, it was an experiment. Um, and honestly, I don't know what the final results of the experiment are. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people write me saying, hey, this is really fun. I really like that, you know, you're coming out in, like, I can read one section and then I read the next and it's cheap. You know, each one is like $1.99 or $2.99. Um, but I've also had people go online saying, hey, I thought this was a whole book. Why are you giving me this as a whole book? What the hell? And they're pissed. Um, so, you know, it's it's sort of gone both ways. I don't know what the ultimate shakeout will be of it. Um, I think I, I, I'm all in for, like, trying new stuff, uh, especially in the world of books. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I also, you know, when you go out and you do a book tour and you go to small bookstores all around the country, you know, there's nothing they hate more than Amazon and ebooks right. and e-readers. And I am a big supporter of bookstores. You yeah. know, I, I think bookstores are great and I think we need them. So uh, there's that end too. And maybe just curious um, about a book tour. What is that like? Who sets that up and, and what is that process like? Just out of curiosity myself. Well, I am not, um, you know, uh, Tom Clancy. Oh, because he's dead, so I'm definitely not Tom Clancy. But, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I'm not Harlan Coben or some huge writer, so my book tour is very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, it is generally just to the cities that I have, like, some kind of fan base or attachment to. Sure. So for King of Fear, I'm going to New York. And I'll do a reading there and then I'll be in L.A. and I'll do a couple of readings there and I'll go down to San Diego and then I'll be in Seattle because I I live in Seattle and I I live in both Seattle and um, uh, L.A. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'll do a couple of readings in Seattle Uh, and the um, the publisher sets it up and they just, you know, make it happen with the local bookstores and the local bookstores sort of publicize it, but they kind of count on you to publicize it as well and to bring people in. Um, and you know, I book, book tour readings can be wonderful. Like I had a great one in New York. I, it's sort of like 50, 50, you have a great one, then you have a terrible one. So like I did a great one in New York and I had all these people and some of them I knew and some of them I didn't, it was fun. And then I went down to Washington DC and I had six people and three of them were homeless and wow. it was brutal. It was like, Oh my God, this is like so hard. Um, <laughs> But you just have to sort of, you know, grin and bear it and, and just, you know, talk to them anyway. And you're like, you do a book reading and you talk to one person. That's it. You're just, that's, that's how it works. And every novelist from the most successful to the smallest have had disastrous book sure. readings. So it's like a badge of honor. Right. Like the comedian playing to, or a band playing to an empty house. Kind of exactly. Yeah, Ex- that's it. In fact, that is exactly what it's like because yeah. – you have to try to be funny, even there's just like two drunks and a hooker. It's like, right. okay, that's right. it. That's well, I'm going to be funny anyway. Right. It's some random bar in Lubbock, Texas. Totally. Yeah. Totally, totally. I did one in Phoenix, and it was like, again, it was like four people, and two of them were my close friends. <laughs> right. And you know, every big comedian, every big rock band had to do those gigs. And it's just, you know, it's part of that problem. You know, but, but in, in for novelists, it can even be like 
big fancy famous novelists can get you know just oh, sure you just you're you show up and like nobody shows up it's right. like okay well so be it yeah and rice at the mall of america you never know there could be yeah. exactly exactly crickets um <laughs> <laughs> um so uh where do you sort of get your I don't want to say where to get your ideas from, because that's obviously it can come from anywhere. Uh, but where do you sort of find inspiration when you are again? And also writer's block is sort of a, a thing where some people believe that it exists. You just have to work right your way out of it. And some people believe that it's just a mental block and it goes away on its own. And some people believe that it doesn't exist at all. And it's just you're handicapping yourself. Where do you find inspiration and in your writing and uh, how do you prevent sort of that, you know, lethargy or that sort of difficulty of writer's block if that happens to you at all? Sure. Um, well, for, as for inspiration, uh, it you know, I think my soul is the soul of a journalist, mm -hmm. um, just a really bad journalist. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm like a sponge. Like I'm constantly just reading articles, books, newspapers, talking to people, you know, going around the country, whatever it is. I just I'm always looking for stories, always looking for ideas. Um, and you know, 99 out of a hundred of those ideas are just crap. I mean the worst. Um, but like one out of a hundred, you know, like that's, that's good. And I always say that if I can get one really good idea per year, mm -hmm. just one, then I'm happy. Like, you know, like really nailed it. You know, that, yeah. that's, that's a good batting average for me. One a year. If I get one every two years, I'm not happy, but at least I got one every two sure. years. And it takes me from the time I get the idea to the time I either like pitch it to a network or write it as a script. It's usually, it usually takes me a year just to think about it. Just not, not to write a single, you know, word, just reading and thinking and like, trying it out as this or pitching it to people like, Hey, what do you think about this idea? What do you know? Like I'm always like just throwing it out there and like, would you do this? Would you do that? And so it's very, it's very malleable, um, very sponge like. And, um, and, and so that's, that I think is the, the hard part um, is finding that good idea that, and not, you know, it's like when you get a good idea, how do you know it's a good idea? To me, if you have to ask yourself whether it is good or not, right. you know, it's like the you, you if you have to ask, you can't afford it. It's like it's the moment you have to ask that question, it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. It's like the good idea is you're just like, oh, that's a good idea. I right. get it. That that really makes sense. Um, and that's why they're so hard to come by. Right. Um, and then it, the writer's block, I don't really have writer's block per se. Like I've never had that and I don't quite – um, I mean, I believe it. Honest, obviously, it does happen. It just doesn't happen to me. I, but I think that writer's block can take a lot of forms. For me, the form it takes is writing really sort of um, very generic crap, honestly. Like, uh, you know, I just will write something that's that anybody could write. Mm -hmm. It's not Drew Chapman. It's not. It's not me. It's not. It's just like stuff and I come back to it and I go, wow, this is really just stuff. This is not, this is not a real, this is not a screenplay. It's not a book. This, this is just, meh. it's kind of bloodless. Um, and that does happen to me and uh, that'll happen for sometimes a long time. And, and you know, you, you just, you're like, huh. And I, you just kind of write through it and you just try to find ways to make stuff more interesting. Um, it's hard because, there are so many scripts and television shows and books out there. There are just so many. There's so much content and a lot of it is really good. A lot of it's bad, but there are so many ideas. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things that people are writing about. It's hard to be original. It's hard to be, you know, really fresh. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can always compare yourself and your stuff to somebody else's. Um, and some people make, you know, huge careers out of just writing stuff that's just barely different than somebody else's, but it's very successful. Right. Um, I'm not that guy. Um, so it, that, you know, I wish I were because I think those people are 
wealthy and happy and they have <laughs> big houses. Um, right. So, but that's, that's not my thing. Um, I wanted to ask, you had mentioned you do a lot of research and that's one of your favorite parts. How much do you actually write per day on average and or are there days where you're basically doing research and not writing at all? Or are you pretty much, in order to keep the train moving, so to speak, are you writing every day, even days that you're spent a lot of time doing research and, and uh, that sort of thing? No, when, when I'm doing research, I'm just doing research. I'm just, you know, going off and talking to people or reading or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really write. When, when I'm doing writing days, I mean, I can still do research on writing days, make phone calls or whatever, but the writing days, I try to, it depends on what my deadline looks like, but mm-hmm. um, I try to write 10 pages a day, um, 10 pages of screenplay or 10 pages of book. 10 pages of book is hard because that's yeah. a lot of words. Yeah. Um, 10 pages of screenplay, that's kind of what you have to do, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're on staff. Um, if you're writing for a show that's going, you know, 10 pages is, you know, you got like eight days to write the thing. So, um, so that's not, that's not too difficult. Um, but in general, that, that's my, my goal and however long it takes. Like some days it takes three hours, some days it takes all day. And it just, you know, if it takes three hours, I do three hours and then I quit. If it takes all day, then I just keep going till I'm, till I'm done. Um, books, it's a little different. You kind of, have a longer timeline and um, you, you you can spread it out. That said, my first drafts always are just terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, they you know I just I just get it on paper. I love to rewrite. I mm-hmm. love to edit. I love to change. I love thinking about how to change it. Um, so to me, having a first draft is hard. But then when the first draft I have it, then I just go back in and and change it over and over and over again. Um, and that, that's like so much fun for me. I just, wow. I don't know why I just love it. I guess again, maybe it's the journalist in me. I just, you know, making the sentences better, making the scenes better, changing the characters, changing the plot. It's just, I don't know. It's fun. And when I, you know, I teach screenwriting every once in a while mm-hmm. and I find that the biggest problem that people face, and we sort of talked about this, is that people who don't do it for a living, People who are just learning think that the thing they have written is it. Right. It's done. And it's like, no, it's not done. It's never done. You, right. you know, you are, you are doing yourself a terrible disservice by believing that what you've written is great because it's not great. I guarantee you. Um, or even if it is great, it could be greater. Um, and you, you really need to, to dive back in to find ways to make it greater because you know, going back to what we just said a minute ago, there's so many shows out there. There's so many books. There's so many scripts. And some of them are really good. Mm-hmm. And you need to raise the level of what you're doing to that level. Sure. Um, and that's hard. Now, you had mentioned that, you, that your first drafts are crap. But I, really, most people's drafts, most writers' drafts are crap. First drafts are crap. I mean, that's just the way it is. And well, you... m- most writers, third and fourth drafts are crap, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, unless you're Vince Gilligan or somebody, uh, you know, uh, of that nature, William Goldman, uh, although I, I'm sure their second and third and fourth drafts are better than their first, even if their first drafts are probably pretty good. But yeah, for most totally. writers, their first drafts are, are terrible. So um, I wanted to, to ask, though, when you're not writing on staff or you don't have a deadline or an assignment, how much writing do you do on an average day? For example, if you're writing your own pilot or you're writing your new book and there's no specific set deadline, how much writing do you think you would do on an average day? Is it something that, you know, like I read that I think Stephen King writes like 10 pages a day or something like that every day. Uh, deadline or not, and then, you know, some other writers, obviously you do a lot of research and do other idea hunting kind of things. Do you specifically set out time to write every single day or no. is it? Okay. No, no, no. It's if, if I'm, if I'm researching, like I said, I, I just, I just research, but mm-hmm. when I'm writing, I still try to stick to whether I have a deadline or not. I, I try and stick to the 10 pages a day. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. That's, that's never been like my problem. Right. Uh, that I, I can just sit down and do it and keep doing it. And, 
Um, and I don't have like, I don't, I'm not one of those people like I read John Grisham, like he has to write every single day right. except Sunday when he goes to church or something. Like <laughs> <clears throat> I don't need that. Like, you know, I can go a month without writing. I get a little cranky. I get a little like, you know, twitchy, like I need to get back to writing, but mm-hmm. I can do it. Um, and then I, you know, when I, I know that when I'm back to writing, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that happens to me is that because I switch back and forth from books to television, I find that there's a lot of collateral writing I have to do as well. And that's hard. Um, because like, and by collateral, I mean like I'm writing a blog post for, uh, you know, a guest blog for a mystery thriller book website. Um, or there's a Q and a for, you know, a a site about spy television shows. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to do that, especially you don't have to do it as much as a TV writer because you have the networks behind you, like, you know, with this mass marketing power, but publishing is more mom and pop and you're expected to like get out there and, and, you know, create a little uh, buzz for your own books. And, Mm -hmm. um, that's hard. That is really like, because you're really switching off between formats and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I just, I'm not practiced at it. I don't know that anyone is. (laughs) Um, how long does it take you to write, uh, a novel, like how long did it take you to write The Ascendant or The King of Fear versus like how long it takes you to write a pilot? Well, yeah, a pilot. I mean, you know, I'm so practiced at that. Right. I could do that in like a week, two weeks. And mm-hmm. then, but you know, I mean, I can write it in a week and then spend a month rewriting it, just sure. tweaking it. Um, I would say that it takes me about six months to get a first draft of a book finished. Oh. Um, and then I'll take another six months to, uh, to edit it and rewrite it and think about it. And, you know, and I might do television work in between. Um, they expect you in the world of publishing, if you want to be a sort of a brand name thriller mystery writer, mm-hmm. they expect you to write one a year. Oh. Um, and that is tough. Yeah. Especially, it's not tough. If, if I were just that person, mm-hmm. just doing that, um, it wouldn't be so hard. But given that I do so much TV as well, that's right. hard. Um, so to, to flip back and forth. So, so far really it's been like every 18 months to two years that I get a book out, but I only have two books. Um, but I am starting on a third and I'd like to have that so that it could be, so that it could come out in 2017. Um, but you know, that's, it's a tall task. Yeah. Now, uh, with so many sort of anti-hero heroes, uh, on television, uh, what's the uh, the vibe for something like The Ascendants or The King of Fear making you know uh, making their way to TV? You know when when can we expect Garrett Riley uh, on? Well, uh, when can you see him on the screen? Well, right. um, a bit of a tortured path when before the first one was even published when it was in manuscript form, um, but it was going to be published. Uh, Fox bought the book. Oh, wow. Um, and in some ways, I think, you know, the thing you have to be careful of, and God, I hope Fox executives don't hear this, but maybe they will, so I'm <laughs> screwed. The thing you have to be careful of as a television writer of once you've made it, sort of, mm-hmm. once you're in demand, is that people just want to work with you yeah, um, as opposed to want to tell the story that you want to tell. Right. Um, and, like, you know, your readers, your listeners are like, boy, he's an ass. Like, I just want people to work with me, you know, to want to work with me. And it is wonderful. And it is, um, it is a compliment, but it's also dangerous because they're just hiring you for you as opposed to being completely behind the story you want to tell. Right. Um, and that can be a little daunting. So anyway, they bought it. I think they wanted to work with me more than they wanted to tell that particular story. Sure. Um, and I wrote the script, and they uh, it, it they had another sort of cybery um, thriller at the time, which they made as opposed to mine. I don't think it ever became a series. And also, um, CBS had that show Scorpion, which has some similarities to um, my books. Um, so it I sold it, I wrote it, and it didn't get made. Um, I have the rights back. Um, to the books, to the characters. Um, and I have not sold the next one. And I've sort of, what happened was 
I started writing the pilot for Fox and I, f- and I was writing book two at the same time. And I found that the changes I was making to make it a television show were infecting how I was writing the book. Mm. And that was kind of weird. Like yeah. I was, the characters were changing because of the book, because of the script I was writing. And I <laughs> found that I didn't want to, you know, like I didn't want that. That was bad. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know how to wall off the two. Um, so w- when the pilot fell apart, apart, I, um, I just focused on the book right. and that was good. I got back into the book and walled it off from any ideas of a television show. Um, that's, and I, I wonder about that. Like, will I be able to do both? Um, right. You know, I have people in my sort of camp who want me to sell the second book now and try to turn it into a show because maybe in some ways it's more of a television show than the first one. And I'm a little, I'm still a little like skeptical. I don't know. Like, I, I love writing the books so much and I love that they're just books, you know, that that's kind of great. They, they aren't TV shows, you know, they're just, it's like this thing you pick up and read. That's super interesting, though, to hear how, as the author writing a, the television series, the pilot, how that comes comes back and affects your writing of the show, comes back and affects the books. And you wonder how something like Game of Thrones, as it's being developed as a show and the book series, and they're still they're still parallel, but George R. R. Martin being influenced by the show instead of the other way around. So it's kind of, Oh my God. I mean, I think about that all the time. I think, I mean, how, you know, because the, the, the show has now is jumping past books. And so like, they're going to be alternate universes and let's be honest. I mean, I think that the books are successful, but the show is like a mega hit. Yeah. The show overshadows Mm -hmm. the books. So are you just going to ignore what goes on in the show? If you're George R R R R Martin and start <laughs> writing like just what you want. I mean, I think he, he has to, but yeah. it's, it's a very interesting, complicated, weird like thing. But and it also takes place, you know, it took place in yeah. Harry Potter land, right? Right. So JK Rowling, cause the movies came out, they were huge hits. And then she had to keep writing books. Mm-hmm. And she even talks about how like, you know, Daniel Radcliffe, he was, he was Harry, but he wasn't the Harry that she necessarily saw. And right. And and so it's 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 an odd thing. I mean, obviously, it's an odd thing to happen to maybe like five or six people in the history of the planet, but it is an odd thing. Yeah, and it's it's. I think it's also sort of going on with uh, Walking Dead, but I'm just curious as to how it works uh, with somebody like. Uh, Robert Kirkman, who writes The Walking Dead, created the comic book series. Still, comic book series is still ongoing, but he also writes for the show and writes for the comic to see if there's some sort of, like, if the show, it has to affect his writing of the comic and where that goes. But yet it's still a separate entity completely. Well, and this is probably too geeky a subject to go into, but I will just go there anyway. I have this sort of harebrained theory that all of these different mediums of storytelling are kind mm-hmm. of converging um, because like, you know, you can watch a television show on a TV screen or you can watch it on your phone or you can right. watch it on your iPad. You can watch a television show once a week when it drops on CBS or on Netflix, you can binge it, you know, in the course of two days. So if you're binge watching a television show over the course of two days on a Netflix series, is it still a television show or is it just a really long movie? And if you're, (laughs) if you're, if you're reading a book, my novel on your phone, Mm -hmm. is it really a novel? I'm not sure what the hell it is. If you're listening, cause like, the Ascendant was read by, you know, uh, an actor, and it, there's an audiobook. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to an audiobook, is it still a novel? Like, I don't quite know. It's not the same experience. Having somebody read something to you is not the same experience as picking up a book and reading through it. Right, absolutely. Um, so there's like a change in the form, right? The medium is different. It's not really a book anymore. And so... You know, when you ask the question about, like, he's a staffer on Walking Dead, but he also creates the comic book. It's like the comic book and the television show, the worlds are blending in a weird way. Right. Um, Not entirely. Obviously, there's still books and there's still comic books and there's still TV shows. But there is crossover. There's a lot, a lot of crossover. 
So uh, a friend of mine on uh, had asked on Facebook, does listening to an audiobook count on your New Year's resolution to read a certain number of books a year? Does listening to the audiobook count? As a an author who has a, an audiobook, would that count on your New Year's resolution? <laughs> yes or no? Well, you, you are the, the official judge here. I, I, if I'm arbiter on that one, I say yes, it okay. counts. Yes. Uh, but it Maybe does it can it count like three quarters? <laughs> Not one whole point. You know, nice. you know what? It's like I I mean audiobooks are a fascinating topic because for instance I when I'm in LA and I'm battling traffic, I go I join Audible and I download a book and mm-hmm. I just listen to the book while I'm battling traffic. Right. And you know, I had this experience of there's uh I'd always wanted to read Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Right. Mm-hmm. Classic novel. But when I when I picked it up as a book, I could not get 10 pages into it. I mean, I just could not read the thing. I was right. like, oh, my God, this is so dense and so weird and so Russian. I just I can't even read it. And then I got it as an audiobook, mm-hmm. And it was like the greatest audiobook I've ever. I mean, like literally Brothers Karamazov is one of my favorite novels. I've never read it. <laughs> All I've done is listen to it in my car. Right. Like, does that count? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I don't know. I think so, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to say yes just yeah. for cocktail parties, but uh, truth is, I have no idea. That's an interesting question. Um, I know you've got staffing meetings coming up, staffing calls, so we've got to sort of wrap this up. But I do have a few other questions. I got quite a few other questions, but um, one of which I didn't, I wanted to make sure I got before, for sure, 100% for sure, which was. Uh, I read that you were a bootleg T-shirt salesman. I wanted to know what was your highest-selling T-shirt. <laughs> uh, that was many, many years ago. I was so I, I sold T-shirts. It was New York City long ago, and a guy um, who was actually a friend of my mom's. He ran the concession. Um, inside of a bunch of venues in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, the Palladium down on 14th Street was the main one. And what he would do, he was such a crook, he would, <laughs> he had, he hired guys, always high school kids, to sell t-shirts inside during a concert. And then, and these were like official, you know, t-shirts from the band, mm. that the band split revenues with him. Right. And then, he would have a whole bunch of other ones printed up and hire other guys to go sell them outside that he just made the money off of. And so sometimes I worked inside and sometimes I worked outside. Right. And, you know, inside was legit. Outside was bootleg. And, of course, I was in high school. So, like, you know, I saw, like, tiny pennies on the dollar. Right. And plus it was totally terrifying work because people are always trying to steal your T-shirts or pay you less money or scream at you and they were drunk and stoned. And right. it was not fun. Not a fun job. <laughs> Um, you think, oh, wow, how romantic. But in fact, it was like the worst. <laughs> so I have no idea what my highest selling was, highest selling teacher was. All I know was that you just wanted to sort of survive through the night without right. getting ripped off. That's funny. No, I never would have thought that bootleg t-shirt salesman was any way, shape or form romantic. I didn't romanticize it at all in my head. I just thought it was super interesting. And, and uh, <laughs> No, it's fun. just, you know what? That job's just tough. That's just a tough job. And I guess they still do it, but I don't know. It's been so long since I've been to a concert that I have no idea. <laughs> That's a great story, though. I, I do. You're going to have to incorporate that in something at some point. Exactly. Um, let's see. Uh, we have a section we like to call reading, watching, playing, and listening to. I'd love to find out what you're reading currently, watching, playing, if you play any sort of games or uh, anything like that, and listening to. What sort of uh, music or audiobooks you're listening to? Um, okay, I'll start with reading. I am reading, well, I, I tend to read um, stuff that's in the genre that I'm writing, just mm-hmm. to sort of keep my head in the game. Um, so I've been reading a bunch of, um, pulling up a bunch of mystery thrillers. Um, Alifair Burke writes uh, thrillers about a prosecutor in New York City. A guy named C.J. Box writes about a game warden in Wyoming, um, the Joe Pickett novels. Mm. Um, so I've been reading those, and uh, I just sort of to keep my head in that world. When I'm not reading stuff specifically for that, I was reading this book called The Wake. Um, it's an English novel, and it's about uh, 
a lord in 1066, the Norman invasion of, of England. And the amazing thing about this book, and it's very odd, is that it's written in a fake old English. Hmm. Um, so the whole book, the language of the book, is this sort of made-up old English. It's very hard to read at first, but then once you start to read it, it's, it's just spectacular. Um, and it's called The Wake. So that's what I've been reading. Um, so it's sort of like a Journal of the Plague Year. Kind of it thing. is totally like that. Gotcha, it's gotcha. totally like a Journal of the Plague Year. That's amazing. Um, watching, I've been watching um, Jessica Jones. Um, yeah, great show. On uh, Netflix. Really like it. And also uh, Master of None, which the, the Aziz Ansari show, which yeah, I think honestly might be the best television show I've ever seen in my life. I just love that show. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Um, that I could ever write something that good, real, or funny is, you know, completely out of reach, but I do really enjoy it. Um, and I like Jessica Jones, too. It's yeah. um, it's it's good. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's for, for a superhero show, it's pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, and what's the next one? What do I listen to? Um, you know, I'm obsessed with listening to podcasts so like i just listen to i'm a total economic science geek so Mm -hmm. i listen to podcasts about molecular genetics and economics um okay that's just i can't help it i'm that's who i am um and i do it when i like go for a run or go to the gym or you know like when i know that i'm going to be intensely bored i hate going to the gym so that's the only thing that keeps me um fit from having a heart attack is podcasts about Really geeky stuff. Keeping track of the uh, crumbling Chinese economy and exactly <laughs> how much val- valuation Alibaba's lost in the past couple weeks. Exactly. Gotcha. gotcha. Exactly. Uh, and playing? Are you playing any sort of games? Do you play instruments? I don't play instruments. I'm the least um, musical person you'll ever meet. Um, and in terms of games, that is a, a sore spot for me. I have to not buy game consoles because. I will fall into games and just disappear. Yeah. And like it, I, it, I might not come back for like three months. Um, and so I'm very careful. I used to own a bunch of consoles and then I just got rid of them. I we, would just play forever. We've interviewed a few, uh, game writers cause that's a whole nother genre. That's just taking off and some amazing writing in some of these games nowadays. Oh, and I'm so fascinated by that. And actually it's something that I've, I've really been, Thinking about trying to, you know, I don't know, push my way into. I don't know anything about the people who actually do it. But mm-hmm. given that I split my time between L.A. and Seattle, and there's so much game right. making up here, mm-hmm. um, it's it's very much a, a, a source of interest for me. Yeah, no, it's it's completely fascinating, and and the stories are so complex, so complex, and it's just so different. It's it's like this is great. This is a whole new form of storytelling. Yeah. 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 No, I'm totally into it. Some are linear, some are open world. It's just really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring writers out there, or is there anything else you'd love to share with us? Advice for aspiring writers? Um, you know, I think uh, you just, like, it's the usual stuff about being persistent and mm-hmm. and getting your nose bloodied through criticism and, you know, like, don't don't take it personally. Don't take it too hard. Just You just have to keep going. I mean, I think that the thing I try to say to people who are um, uh, learning about screenwriting, want to be a screener, want to be a novelist, is, you know, that you have to be patient. You really have to take your time. You know, people, I think it's great when people are ambitious, and I think it's great when they really want to, you know, rule the world and, and have 10 shows on the air. And You know, but it'll come. And, and stick with it. And, and the, the really important thing is to to kind of find out, to know yourself and know your your obsessions and know your what the what you care about in the world and and what what matters to you. And um, as you learn that and, and you get really comfortable with that, you know, it, it sort of forms your voice. And it's really important that a writer has a voice. Yeah. Um, without that voice, you're not nobody cares. Um, nobody cares what you have to say. You have to to cultivate your obsessions and and your your quirks and and really just and and embrace them and know them. You have to know yourself enough so that you know what your quirks are and right. your your obsessions are. And then you become a writer. Then you really have something to say with about the world and. 
people are interested. And until you have that, you're 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 copying other people. Yeah. Absolutely. So. And and it, like you say, you have to have a voice. It has to be your voice. It has to be you your copying voice. somebody else's voice. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think it's totally fine if, you know, what your voice is, is some form of, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of somebody else's voice, but then making, sure. you know, you really like Quentin Tarantino and you're going to write kind of like him, but you're also going to make it your own, right. you know, and that's. That's okay. That's yeah. fine. You don't have to be wholly original. <laughs> well, but we're all yeah. influenced by the, by those that came before us that we re- love and respect their work. Exactly. We all take something exactly. from away from that. It's just you can't mimic it, I think, because you will ultimately fail because you're not Quentin Tarantino. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And did you see him on the Golden Globes last I, night? I Even did. he's not Tim Quentin Tarantino. I don't know what he was about. <laughs> It was like he was drunk, or he's just crazy. <laughs> but he's always interesting. Always, always, always he, interesting. Always interesting. And that's the thing: if you're going to be bizarre, if you're going to have be difficult, be interesting at least. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Be sure to check out The Ascendant and The King of Fear, available now on Amazon. Although uh, The King of Fear will be out in bookstores on February 16th. Yep. So definitely check them out and follow Drew on Twitter at Andrew D. Chapman uh, and visit his website and blog at DrewChapmanAuthor.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with us today, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It was great. Totally fascinating. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, send us an email to askscriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle, just at scriptscribes. And thanks for listening. <laughs>